Today's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a living word of God for us today. Good morning. For those of you I don't know, my name is Rob Sweet. It really is a joy to be here because I I love God's Word, I love teaching God's Word, and I love you all. So it's really wonderful to be back. It's been a while since I've had an opportunity to be here and and teach. Um, I'm excited about what God's been doing in us through this series. And as Carl led us back through that Colossians Creed, it brought back all that teaching and it integrated into where we're going to go today. And the first thing I want to point out is... What's obvious right here, this doesn't usually belong on our stage. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you normally think black box. Maybe the flight recorders from an airplane. That's not what this is, but it is a different kind of black box. There is a mystery here. There is something underneath this black box that I will reveal to you before the message is complete. Not yet, but I will show you what's under here. And I can go ahead and tell you, in a sense, everything I say is leading up to the moment that I will reveal the mystery under the box. Um, For those of you that are a little bit squeamish, I can promise you nothing's going to pop out of the box. Although I did have one of our producers say it would have been funny to put like a Roomba vacuum cleaner under there so it can be moving around while I preached. (laughs) Like, I don't think that would have been that funny. It would have spooked me out. But uh, there is something under here that is worth your time this morning. There is something under here uh, that once you understand, once you see, once you um, get the mystery revealed, you will think to yourself, this was worth coming for. Now, I don't know how to set it up any bigger than that, so I better deliver. (laughs) While we wait, let me give you a few clues as to what may be under the box, and then we're gonna teach through this text and explain how this all relates to this mystery. Um, Here's what's under this box. It is something simple, yet profound. It is something small, yet remarkably grand. It's something for our time, but not for right now. And it is something you can hold, but never possess. While you think about that, go ahead and open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. And if you still have your copy of the scripture journal that we handed out several weeks ago, we are on page eight of that. Now, some of you have jumped into the series after the beginning and you didn't get one of these. It's not too late. We're going to be in this book for quite some time. We'll take a break for Advent, come back to it in the first of 2020 and be walking through it probably through Easter. So it'd be worth your time to go ahead and grab one of these journals. The reason we like these is because it has the scripture on one side and then just a blank page on the other side for you to take notes. And here's what I can promise you today. We're not going to close out chapter one. Uh, That's going to be Lloyd's job next week, but I can promise you we will turn the page. 
And that's good if you've got a lot of notes like I do on the right-hand side. You need more space to write. So we will turn the page today. We're going to cover four verses, the very verses that Joe just read for us in these four verses. There are two key ideas. Each idea centers on a word, a key word that we're going to spend some time doing some word studies in there. And each one has an application. So the way the message will work is key word, key idea, application. Second key key word within uh, key idea and an application, and then we'll pull them together at the end. Let me give you a bit of context here. Back in, in verse 23, which Lloyd taught last week, I'm gonna pick it up halfway through the verse. Uh, Paul's declaring himself to be a servant of the gospel. And this is what he says about the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all creation, talking about the gospel under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You must not understand minister as professional clergy person. That didn't exist back in Paul's day. So if what comes to your mind in minister is me or Lloyd or you know a guy with a black robe and a white collar, not what Paul had in mind. Paul simply saying he's a minister in the servant sense. He's a servant of the gospel. Guess what? So are you. So am I. So are we. We are all ministers in this context. We are servants of the gospel. If you're a believer, follower of Jesus Christ, you're a minister or a servant of the gospel. That's important to know because of where Paul goes next. Verse 24, which is our first verse this morning, is the most complicated, hardest to interpret verse in Colossians. That's not just my opinion. That's the scholarly consensus when you read a lot on this letter, which I have. Uh, It's worth spending some time on. It's not just complicated in an academic sense, although it is a bit. It's it's gold underneath it, and I want you to see it. So we're going to spend about more than half of the message on this one verse. That's going to be keyword one, key, key idea one, and key application. Then we'll, we'll speed up and go through the final three verses for point two. So let's dig into verse 24. It really matters. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. What in the world? It sounds like heresy. Doesn't it? What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? We'll unpack that in a minute. But first, I want you to draw a box around the word Christ because we're doing that in this series. Every time we come to a direct reference of Jesus, we're drawing a box around it. There are 63 direct references to Jesus Christ in just 95 verses. It's a very short letter, 63 direct references. It's why some people call Colossians, you know, the most Christ-centered of all the epistles. Now, uh, you got a box around Christ. The next thing I want you to do is draw a circle around the word sufferings because that's the first key word. Let's go ahead and do that as well. So sufferings, that word is going to help us unlock our first key idea and help you understand this very complicated, complex verse. Let's talk about sufferings for uh, just a few moments. Um, Notice that Paul is connecting joy to sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. That's, by the way, another way of saying I find joy in my sufferings. Now, we don't associate those two things together because in our culture, happiness, which, by the way, is, is, is not nearly as um, rich a word as joy, but, but that's how we would talk about it in our cultural context. Happiness or joy is, is gotten to by the lack of suffering, by comfort, by convenience, by entertainment, and by pleasure. That's how we pursue joy. That's how we pursue happiness in our cultural context. So how, why in the world would Paul say, I rejoice in my sufferings? That makes no sense. Let's talk about the word sufferings and see if we can unpuzzle this or figure out this puzzle. 
Theologically speaking, when you're reading through your Bible and you see this word, it's going to point to one of two kinds of sufferings. The first kind of suffering you often see in Scripture is what I like to call the life is hard sufferings. It is the reality of living in a broken, fallen planet with broken, sinful people. Life is hard. And and I know we can all agree with that. There's things that come in our lives that we would not have chosen that cause us hardship, that, that make us physically suffer, make us emotionally suffer. Sometimes it's hard to get out of bed in the morning, some, whether that's emotional or physical. Sometimes it's hard to care about people and love people. That's always true, right? Why is that? Because people are sinful and we're sinful ourselves. Our work is hard. It's hard to make ends meet. It, it's, it's hard for our dreams to come true. It's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. Life is hard. That is no doubt true and there's no question that there can be joy in that kind of suffering, but that is not the kind of suffering Paul is referring to in this text. So that will be a sermon for a different day. The kind of suffering that Paul is talking about is the second category of suffering, which is suffering for our faith. Suffering, kind of a a persecution kind of suffering. This is what Paul was experiencing. Remember, he was writing from prison. So, you know, he wasn't suffering from a backache or he wasn't suffering financially or he wasn't suffering, you know, from a broken heartache relationship. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the fact that he's in prison. But notice what he says right after that, for your sake. We don't usually think about suffering for others' sake. Maybe you think about um, religious persecution as suffering for Christ or suffering for God. But Paul is saying, suffering for your sake. So we can nuance the kind of suffering Paul is describing. It's suffering for his faith, but more particularly, it's what I would call servant suffering. Servant suffering. That means suffering for other people, suffering for the sake of others or for the benefit of others. It's almost like vicarious suffering. I'm suffering so you don't have to. And you'll see how that plays out in what follows. That's important to know before we explain the harder to interpret part, which is the second half of the verse. So let's go there now. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's where we've come. And then let's keep going. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. What in the world is he talking about? What does he mean, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? I thought Christ's work was done. I thought Christ's work was perfect. I thought it was whole. I thought you couldn't add anything to the work of Jesus Christ. You'd be right. You'd be right. In fact, Paul himself teaches that in many other places. So is he here contradicting himself? No, I don't believe he is. The first thing we have to know is Paul is not talking about Christ's substitutionary death. That's not the kind of suffering Paul's talking about. He's not talking about the atonement. He's not going there. How do we know this? Number one, he would be contradicting himself in many other places when he says, the work of Christ is done, it is finished, it is sufficient for you. We were just singing that. Jesus, you are enough for me, etc. And that's a true theology rooted in scripture. So we know it's not that. The second reason we know it's not that is uh, gets a little more technical. The word afflictions, you see that? What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Uh, that word, the Greek word that's translated into English afflictions, 
The Greek word is never used ever in any other context to refer to Christ's suffering on the cross. It's not atonement. It's not the substitutionary death of Jesus that Paul is referring to here. That word never actually refers to that kind of suffering. So Paul is talking about different kinds of suffering that Jesus went through. Well, what other kinds of suffering did Jesus go through? Think of it this way, and I did a lot of study on this, and by the way, whole volumes have been written about what Paul meant when he said that. Uh, and you can you know, knock yourself out. I spent probably 10 plus hours this week just on this part because I figured y'all didn't have time to spend 10 hours, even though I'm sure you wanted to. Uh, you might say I, re I rejoiced in uh, suffering for your sake <laughs> in doing this. So um, here's what I found out. There's a couple different ways you can go in this that would be within the pale of orthodoxy, if you want to think of it that way. That, that, that could be a, a, a true way that what, what Paul meant. But here's one, here's the one, in fact, that I think the evidence best supports. And, and I think once you understand this, it, it, the whole passage makes sense. It becomes really clear. When Paul writes what is lacking, he is referring to what still must be endured by the body of Christ prior to Christ's return. Who's the body of Christ? Isn't this interesting? Isn't it interesting that the church is called the body of Christ? Paul says, Jesus is the head. We, we just quoted that from our Colossians Creed, which is, you know, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the head of the body, the church. We are the body. Jesus is the head. We are the body. That means we're the hands and we're the feet and we're, we're the body. We're everything else. So here's what this means. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he commissioned the church, his body, to continue the work that he had started. Now, we can't continue atoning work. That's done, one and done, right? So what kind of work was Jesus calling us to continue? Well, servant suffering work. Pouring out his life, this is what he did, his whole ministry, pouring out his life for people in order to point them to the good news of a kingdom, the kingdom of God, and bring them to life. This was what Jesus commissioned us to do, to continue the work. So it's like physically, Jesus ascended into heaven. So physically, Jesus is not on earth anymore. So how is the work of Jesus still being done? Through the church, through his body. What kind of work is it? The same kind of work Jesus did all his life. Do you all realize from morning until night, this man Jesus would serve people? Like that, he didn't like watch football. You know, I mean, he didn't go on vacations. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have good rhythms of rest and, you know, hobbies in your life. That, that's, that's not it. And J Jesus took time away. He took time away to be with the Father. But he would get up early in the morning and spend time in prayer with the Father because he knew from sunup until sundown, he was going to be pouring out his life. You have people pressing in around him. They were going to want to know, you know, what does this mean? What does that mean? Heal this disease, heal that disease. He ministered all day long. And then he laid down his head in whatever home someone would open up for him. He didn't have wealth. He didn't have creature comforts. He spent his entire life as a servant. He was servant suffering his entire life. So when you hear suffering of Jesus, you immediately go to the cross. The cross was just the climactic moment of servant suffering that he'd been doing all his entire ministry. You see, why do we think that as the body of Christ, we should be free from following our master in servant suffering. Um, I believe when Paul says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, uh, 
He is referring to continuing the work of Jesus, not atonement work, but loving other people kind of work, loving other people to the point of sacrifice in order to proclaim the gospel and embody the love of Christ and bring people to life in Jesus. It's exactly what got Paul imprisoned. I want to give you an illustration because I know this is a little bit academic, a little bit heady, and this will kind of bring it to life. Um, a month ago or so, my family was invited to attend a fundraising event for Barefoot Republic, which is one of our um, fellowship local partners. It was a great event. It was, it was outdoor under a tent, and it, it w- had been very hot. You know, it was in that time when it had been hot. But this particular day, God blessed us with beautiful fall weather in the evening. When, as soon as the sun went down, the temperature was really cool. We weren't expecting that. So my, my girls were dressed in like sundresses. And I had a jacket on just because I wanted to, you know, look like a pastor, whatever. Um, so here we were, and we're at the fundraising part, okay, which I thought was great, but my girls were, you know, didn't think was as fun as the games beforehand. But they were sitting there suffering, you know, in a sense, right? I mean, my nine-year-old, not, not exactly her favorite thing to do, but you know, she's, she's just doing this, you know. And I see this, so, so what do I do, men? I take off my jacket. I'm feeling so proud of myself, you know. I'm like, I've got a jacket. I can, I can handle this. I'm a man put it on her. She looks up and says, thank you, daddy. You know, now she's warm. 20 minutes later, I'm back there shivering behind her, right? And so she sees this, you know, and we're actually, the thing's over, so we're getting up to leave. And she says, but daddy, you're so cold. Let me give you the jacket back. I said, oh, sweetheart, no. She said, what do you mean? You're not cold? I said, no, no, I'm cold, but I will not let you give me back that jacket because I would rather be cold than you. This is what Paul is saying. Now, Silly example. I don't know how much I was suffering, really. I mean, I don't know what I was really sacrificing. But Paul was in prison. Why? So, so he could kind of get, whoa, I'm going to get myself tangled up with this cord. Paul was in prison to kind of direct the enemy fire of the persecution on him, the leader, so that they could flourish. This is what's going on. And it's a sense that Paul is saying, listen, if Jesus was here in the flesh, this is what he would be doing for you. And even more, he gave his life for you, you see. So it's my pleasure. It's my joy. I rejoice in being able to follow my master and suffer physically because I am and you are the body of Christ together, living out the vocation of Jesus. Eugene Peterson, um, in his paraphrase, The Message, explains this so brilliantly, so clearly. By the way, sometimes people give the message a bad you know, a knock you know, because they're like, oh, yeah, it's just kind of weird. It's a paraphrase. And listen, it is not the version you want to dive into for a deep study. But when you get stuck on a passage, read, read Peterson's words because he has a way of helping unlock some things. And Peterson was a scholar, by the way. He was a brilliant Hebrew and Greek scholar. He knew what he was writing about. And some of it gets a little bit goofy, but, but he, he's doing something beautiful in, in, trans, in, in paraphrasing this in words that we can get. And he nails Colossians 1.24. It's like, I read all these commentaries for 10 hours, and then I read Eugene Peterson. I was like, man, I could have saved myself a lot of, a lot of time. Uh, and I could have saved us a lot of time by just reading what I'm about to read to you, I think. But I wanted you to, uh, to go through this. I wanted you to suffer, right? Yeah, I heard that, Vanessa. <laughs> You're sitting on the second row. You got to expect that. I can hear you. Okay. <laughs> Let me read how Eugene Peterson paraphrases Colossians 1.24. I want you to know how glad I am that it's me sitting here in this jail instead of you. There's a lot of suffering to be entered into in this world, the kind of suffering Christ takes on. 
I welcome the chance to take my share in the church's part of that suffering. It's really good. And did you catch this? There's a lot of suffering to be entered into. The kind of suffering Christ takes on, not the kind of suffering Christ took on. He takes it on. Present tense. How is he taking it on? Present tense, men and women. Us, you see, his body, his hands, his feet were called to suffer and not just suffer for the sake of suffering. I'm not talking about beating ourselves like the monks used to do, just inflict pain. You know, Jesus had pain, so I'm gonna have pain. That's silly. That's silly. That's not the kind of suffering Paul's talking about. He's talking about servant suffering, suffering for the sake of other people, like, like me with, with, with the jacket. But, you know, sometimes it's a lot more costly than that. Last thing I wanna say on this um, you know, the earliest Christians lived this out distinctively, and I think we've lost it. I think we've lost touch with our vocation as a church to be servant sufferers for the sake of the world around us. Uh, the early church in the first few centuries, do you know what people, um, what, what they were identified with most? You know, think about things that we're identified with most, you know, but this is what the church was most identified with in the, in the early couple first centuries. Um, when mass illness would sweep through ancient cities, it was the Christians who stayed behind to care for the sick. You know, it, it was the Christians who later on started hospitals. I don't know if you knew that historically, but, but it's true. It was the Christians that engaged with the people that the rest of the society didn't care about because the rest of the society had no use for them. It was the Christians that did that. Our vocation as members of the body of Christ is to lay our lives down in service for others, both by announcing the good news and tangibly embodying the love of Christ for them because those two things is what Jesus did. And how else do we follow him if not those two things? You see. And if you believe what Jesus taught, and I know you do or you probably wouldn't be here this morning, you must believe that servant suffering is the path to joy. Jesus says, you find your life when you lose it. See, this, and Jesus taught all this a lot of times. Jesus said, there's fullness of life in trading your own life for the sake of other people. This is what Jesus taught. Paul heard it. He, he, not, he wasn't one of the, the 12, but he heard the 12 teach it. He knew what Jesus had taught. And Paul says, I'm going to live it. I'm going to embody it. Do you know what the secret was to Paul's joy? Following Jesus in this particular way. Now, Paul is not talking about the kind of service that sounds like this. Fine, I'll serve, because it's, it's what I do. I always serve, you know? And, 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 but where's my voice? And, and who's serving me? And why am I always the one that has to pick up your slack? Listen, that's not the kind of, of, of servant attitude that, that Jesus did and that Paul was, was talking about. By the way, when you serve other people with a heart that's tangled up like that, you're not actually serving them. What you're actually doing is you're indebting them to you in your own mind. That's not what Jesus was talking about. And if that's the only kind of service you have in you, I would just say don't. Like, don't serve from that place. What Paul is talking about, what Jesus modeled, is suffering for other people motivated by love. Love of Christ first, love of others second. Does that start to sound like the great commandment? Yes, it does. Here's the thing, and this is what's gonna launch us into the second point. You cannot 
serve this way unless or until you've been transformed by Jesus Christ from the inside out. Because if you try to go from another place of motivation, another place other than the love of Christ that is in you, that has transformed you and is transforming you, it's gonna come out tangled. It's gonna come out twisted and it won't be true service at all. With that in mind, let's go through the rest of our passage I want to pick it up in the last couple phrases of verse 24, and then we'll go on to verse 25, and we'll pick up the pace a little bit here. For the sake of his body, that is the church, verse 25, of which I became a minister or servant according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Listen, when, when Christ came to Paul on that road to Damascus, and he was blinded. You know what he said about him? You know, to Cornel, or, uh, uh, in the story where the guy comes and, and helps him and teaches him, he says, listen, I'm gonna show Paul how much he must suffer for my sake. Jesus Christ commissioned Paul to suffer, but not just suffer for Jesus, to suffer for other people. And Paul is kind of naming that. I'm a servant for you. And, and I've, I'm in this jail cell because I was preaching the gospel to you and other people. And I'm happy about it. I'm happy to be here as I'm serving you in this way. Then we're gonna go on in, in verses 26 and 27 and get to our second key word and key idea. The mystery, verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's mark these two verses up. The, uh, verse 27 has a direct reference to Jesus. Draw a box around that right there. Christ in you. We'll put it on the screen as well. Christ in you. And, and then now, if you will, uh, circle the second key word, which is the word mystery. You'll find it twice, one in verse 26 and once in verse 27. Mystery, this is our second key word. Let's talk about the, what this word means. Mystery is a very interesting word in Paul's theology. Uh, it does not mean a, a riddle or a puzzle to solve. Like, you know, Jesus you know, takes us so far and then you got to riddle out the rest or solve the rest. It's not that kind of mystery. Uh, it does not mean some kind of um, cultish, super secret language. Like, you know, what's the password? You know, knock, knock, knock. Okay, you can get into the club. And it's something that only Christians know and we keep to ourselves because it's a cultish mystery. It's not that kind of mystery. Paul uses the word to mean something that was hidden, but is now out in the open. Something that God chose to conceal, that God chose to keep under wraps, so to speak. And Paul even says for, 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 for generations, I mean, for a long time, but now he's chosen to reveal it. Who has he revealed it to according to this passage? The saints. By the way, that's not Saint Peter, Saint this, Saint that, Saint the other. Saints in the scripture refers to believers in Jesus. We are the saints. All of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, the mystery has been revealed to us. So mystery simply means something that was hidden but has now been revealed just like what is under this box over here has been a mystery. And at the proper time, it is revealed. Are you ready? You are clearly not ready. 
you'll have to keep waiting. <laughs> Throughout scripture, we see this principle, we call it progressive revelation. You don't get the whole thing revealed at the beginning, nor even in the middle of scripture. God slowly over time hints at things, points at things. He's, he tells his people what they need to know in that moment, and that's usually all they need to know. Maybe like points to something in the future just to give hope. Do you guys realize we're, we're still in that? Like we don't know all there is to know, far from it. When Christ returns, man, we're gonna know things, we're gonna see things that are just gonna blow our minds. Life's gonna make sense in a way that it can't possibly this side of that part of God's revelation. Scripture says we're gonna see him face to face. Do you realize the beauty of that, the glory of that? I mean, it's just gonna knock, knock ourselves on our face down, prostrate in, in, in a, the best kind of way. But this is the idea of progressive revelation. Um, think back to Genesis chapter 12. Think how little the people of God knew in Genesis chapter 12. God revealed himself to a man named Abram. Abram wasn't anybody special. He was from the land of Ur, which is now modern day Iraq. He, was, he, he worshiped other gods more than likely, just like his fathers had and his fathers before him. But God showed up in his life and God said, guess what? I'm revealing myself to you as the one true God. And Abram, I'm gonna make you Abraham and you are gonna become a great nation and all the other nations of the world will be blessed through your descendants. And so all throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew people puzzled about this. They wondered, how was God going to make himself known to the rest of the Gentile world and bless them? How is this going to happen? Because from their perspective, the presence of God particularly was where? In the temple, in the Holy of Holies. Before that, in the tabernacle, which, you know, moved around. That was where the presence of God was. So I have to imagine that these Hebrew people prior to, to, to Christ were wondering, well, is Jesus going to bring all the nations here? You know, and, and this is, they're, they're just going to come in big field trips. Or um, maybe, maybe the Holy of Holies will, will go on tour. You know, like a traveling museum exhibit and the presence of God will sometimes be in China and the presence of God will sometimes be in Europe and the presence of God will sometimes be in Israel and it'll kind of wander around. I don't know what they thought, but they must have been thinking how in the world was God going to restore the kingdom of Israel and redeem the nations? That was the mystery. We know the answer. It's right here in verse 27. Paul tells us what it is. Let's, let's, let's say it. What is the mystery revealed? The mystery is, read it. Christ, keep going, in you, the hope of glory. That phrase is loaded. Underline it in your Bible. If I do double underline is what we do on the screen here. Christ in you, that's the mystery. The hope of glory. Now, here's where this is like Amazing. Christ is a Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah. I don't know if you knew that or not, but, but Messiah and Christ, same word, just two different languages. So when you hear Jesus Christ, you know, Christ is not his last name, it's his title. It's Jesus the Messiah. Now, the reason that that's so important is Messiah was the Hebrew king. Messiah was the, gonna be the one to sit on the Hebrew throne of David in the Hebrew kingdom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They weren't expecting Messiah was gonna be the king over everyone and everything necessarily, hinted at at the prophets, but not clearly. Now, Fast forward here for a moment. It turns out, Paul is saying, God's plan all along was for his son 
to be the Messiah, to become a man, live, die, defeat death, ascend back into heaven, and then dwell inside everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile, scattered all throughout the nations of the world, the presence of God in us. The Holy of Holies doesn't have to go on tour. The Holy of Holies has come and through faith indwells you, Gentile people, most of you. Isn't this amazing? I got one little response here, you know? Yes, it's amazing. Um, Paul was amazed by it. It sometimes loses its luster because you're like, you know, you're just saying stuff I've heard all my entire life. But can you see it again this morning? You know, can, can you grab onto the beauty of this? Paul is saying God's secret plan for the renewal of the creation in Jesus Christ through his spirit now in us, dwelling in us. And so we have this beautiful phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that I hope that you will um, uh, take out of this room later today when I dismiss you later and that you'll just kind of just hold it. You'll just reflect on it. You'll meditate on it because it's, it's loaded. It's rich. It's beautiful. You might be asking, well, what's the difference between we are in Christ and Christ is in us? Because last week Lloyd taught that. In fact, he did. Let me draw on the, the screen what, what the illustration Lloyd used. It was really helpful. Uh, he drew a crown, which represents Jesus Christ. We'll put that on the screen. And then he drew a little stick figure person inside the crown. And Paul talks a lot about we are in Christ. That's a theological truth. You are in Christ. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that is true. It has beautiful implications. What we're talking about this morning, we'll draw right next to it to the right. There you are. This time, Jesus is in you, Paul is saying. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're going to draw the crown right there inside that person. And then above, above it, we're writing these words, Christ is in you. So you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Which one is it? Yes. <laughs> and, and, and. We're going to write that word up there too. And. So, so here it is, guys. You are in Christ. And Christ is in you. What's the big idea of those two things? They're kind of synonymous with each other. Here's the big idea. Union with Jesus. Not just, even just friendship with Jesus, as amazing as that sounds. Union with Jesus. In Ephesians 5, when Paul is talking about marriage, he's talking about this mysterious union that, that they're called one flesh. Do you know what he says at the very end of that? He's like, this is a profound mystery, same Greek word, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The union, the one fleshness of marriage is just one way that we get a hint, that we get a subtle, small idea of this union in Christ that is ours. We are in Christ, Christ is in us. Holy cow, you see. And Paul's saying marriage is just a shadow compared to this greater Union, And that's where the hope of glory starts talking about having a whole new meaning. And hope of glory is referring to the oneness with God that we have to look forward to in the flesh in the new kingdom when we see him face to face. And the hope of glory is referring to something remarkable we have access to right now. Let me tell you something about um, my aunt Sherry. Uh, Sherry Hera, she's about my parents' age, so I won't bother you with all the, you know, the relative connections. She's actually my dad's cousin, which makes her my second cousin. I'm just calling her aunt. I saw her for the first time in years a couple months ago at a, at a funeral. 
um, uh, of a family member in D.C. She'd flown from California, and um, we were hanging out with my parents and her and her husband, and they said, Sherry, tell us your story of coming to Jesus. She told the story of coming to Jesus, and she said, but I didn't really understand. I didn't really start to grow until I was in high school, and I read Colossians 1.27. My ears pe- peaked up because I'm like, oh, I think I'm teaching this in a few weeks, you know? So what was it about Christ? Well, what was it about Colossians 1.27? She said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That phrase changed my life. I'm like, Sherry, how did that phrase change your life? She explained it. It was so rich that I emailed her later and said, well, you write this down so I can use it. So I, I got permission to use it. Here's what Sherry said about this phrase. Think about it. She's a teenage girl and she's realizing this. Here's what she wrote. Christ in you, the hope of glory, became precious as a promise that with Christ in me, my life would have glory on it. There's more to say. Guys, just think about a teenage girl who's struggling and wrestling with all the stuff and she's trying to puzzle life together and she's realizing that with Christ in me, my life would have glory on it. More than the promise of glorification when I go to be with the Lord in heaven, the hope of glory is the assurance that my life is so much bigger than my small bumbling. With Christ in me, his presence is a visible reality in my life that sometimes even breaks out and makes me look and act like Jesus. Christ in me, the hope of glory, raises my expectations for my life, having value far beyond what I bring to the table. Listen to this last sentence. I am a piece of God's glory in this world and becoming more so. Men and women, that's, that's the good news. Do you actually believe that? That you are a piece of God's glory on the, in the world and becoming more so. Most of us don't believe that. Most of us say, well, Rabbi, you don't know how much I've been struggling lately. You don't know my past. You don't know the shame that I carry. You know, I'm not a serious Christian. I'm a casual Christian. I'm kind of surprised God hasn't even struck me down for even being in here but based on what I thought and did last week. Oh no, you are in Christ, men and women. And Christ is in you. You are a piece of God's glory in this world and becoming more so. My Aunt Sherry was saying that the fullness of God that dwells in Jesus Christ, Colossians Creed language, was also pleased to dwell in you. Therefore, there is no insignificant life. Therefore, there is no meaningless living when you are filled with the spirit of Jesus. Let me now tie together big idea number one, servant suffering, Big idea number two, mystery revealed. Our vocation and calling as the body of Christ is to continue the servant suffering work of Jesus, laying down our lives in order to proclaim and embody for people the hope of true life in Jesus until he returns. But we cannot live out that vocation until we've been transformed from the inside out by Christ in us the hope of glory. So, therefore, we are his body left here to do his work and he is in us. He has not left us orphans. He is in us to empower us to do the work. Now, are you ready to see what's under the box? Please say yes. (laughs) Yes, you are. And my coat is caught. That would have gone bad. All right, the mystery revealed.
behold the suffering servant. Behold Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, and some of you are thinking, but it's just communion. Just communion. Do you see this? Do you see this? The, 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 the body of Christ, there's nothing magical in this cracker, but what it points to is profound. The blood of Jesus, nothing mystical in this juice, but what it points to is profound. And men and women, you are about to eat and drink. It will pass your lips, go down inside of your being, in your body, do you see? You are in Christ, and Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So take and eat. I want to ask the ushers, don't start passing yet, but you can go ahead and come down and, and get positioned for it. Um, I want to say one more thing before we pass, and the band will go ahead and come out. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ at any time in your life, do you see, do you believe that you are a part of God's glory on this earth and becoming more so? If you believe that, if you have put your faith in Jesus at any point in your life, whether you're a part of this church or not, Take the bread, take the cup with us this morning as a part of this family of faith. And let me say for those of you that have never put your faith in Christ or have never really understood it or you're here as a skeptic or you're just a visitor and then so glad you're here. If today you believe, if you have the faith to believe Jesus lived the life you could never live, his body was broken on your behalf so that you could be in him and he could be in you. His blood was spilt so that you could have a new relationship, which the Bible calls covenant, new covenant in his blood. If you believe that this morning, take, take it with us, eat it with us, drink it with us, be a part of this body with us this morning through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the hope of glory.